Hi, and welcome to the Seacoast Vineyard Church Podcast. We want to thank you for joining us online and remind you to feel free to visit our website at seacoastvineyard.com anytime for up-to-date information on our local church here in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. If you would like to give financially to this ministry, whether that's a one-time gift or a recurring monthly gift, simply click on the Give tab at our website and give however God leads you. Now, we want you to enjoy this message from God's Word. Good morning. Good to see everybody. Welcome to the beach if you're here taking a little time off. Welcome to my beach. I'm glad you (laughs) made it here. Weather finally turned and we're getting some uh, sunshine and some warm weather to get out on the beach. It's, uh, there is probably nothing more controversial uh, or that make people more nervous in church than the topic of giving other than sex. And uh, when, you, when you mention sex, some people want to go back and, can we have a sermon on giving? That would even be better. It's like, <laughs> we're starting a new series today that uh, we're calling Christ and Culture. And uh, my, every about three or four years, I'll take uh, a look, we'll take a look the, uh, at culture and then try to develop a series of sermons around some of the hot-button issues that we have in our culture, things that press in on, let's say, the life of faith and the difference that uh, we as followers of Jesus and those of us trying to follow Jesus have to deal with. I, uh, let me just say this, too. I'm going to deal with this topic. I've preached on this in different ways uh, before, and this morning I'm going to endeavor to deal with this very tastefully and in uh, such a way, but if you do have children and you feel a little in here with you this morning and you feel a little uncomfortable with uh, your pastor saying the word sex and uh, talking about sex in the service, we have a great Vine Kids program in the back. They would love to have your children back there with them. They're having a good time, and so don't feel funny about getting up and taking them uh, to Vine Kids any, at any time and uh, because... Uh, this is going to be kind of a PG, you know. I've said that before, and I, got, I went to PG-13. And so I'm, I'm going to try to stay in PG. I, I preached on this before. The first time we did a series in this church, it was awesome. I think we grew by about 15% uh, when I taught on a, had a series on sex. The next time I did a series, I lost 20% of the church. It's like, I guess I got a little, went a little too far on that one, you know. So I'm hoping I'm finding the... The, the right place. Karen and I, years back in the, back when we were youth pastors, we got in trouble teaching a <laughs> teaching a Bible study on Wednesday nights uh, to teenagers about sex, just because we were fairly clear about uh, what we thought that uh, the kids needed to hear. And uh, and so hopefully we're going to die. Does that make y'all nervous now? You're like, I wonder what he's going to say. It's like I, I don't know. I'm getting a little scared. We have to deal with this. This is a major issue in our culture. Uh, we're inundated uh, with sexual images, and, and there is a, there's actually a, almost a systemic like evil, it seems like, that is pervasive in culture, and that is that uh, there's so much money and power. You know, it's really not about sex. It's about money and power. That's what it's about in our culture. 
and, and what the, the culture does. And I'm not one of these guys that wants to beat up on culture and all of that. You know, I'm a child of the 60s, so my generation paved the way for a lot of what we're seeing right now, unfortunately. And uh, so I, I mean, I didn't become a Christian until I was 20 years old. And so I saw the 60s and I know, I mean, you know, I know what they burst and I was in the middle of it. And so I understand all of that. But at the same time, I know the call of Christ to come and follow him and to be a follower of his not only requires stuff of us, but it also offers so much healing to us. It offers a whole nother life to us and perspective of life. And what I don't want to do for us as a church is I don't want to lose that kingdom perspective of when Jesus comes and rules and reigns in our heart and in our worldview. We, we want to find out what is his worldview when it comes to such a, a, a hot-button topic as sex. And we're going to look at a few topics in the, the weeks ahead in this series. And so um, we're going to be talking about uh, the issue of sex and culture today. We're going to be over in Matthew 19, verse 3 through 12 where Jesus uh, was confronted by some of the Pharisees. And while he doesn't speak directly uh, to the topic of sex, sex is mentioned in, this, in the issue of divorce here when the Pharisees are setting him up, so to speak, for a test. So if you've got your Bibles and you want to grab them and turn over to Matthew 19, verse 3, that would be great. It'll be up on the screens as well. And like I said, I'm so glad you're here. Glad you showed up uh, this Sunday. You know, last Sunday was Easter. There were way over 700 people here through all the services. And yesterday they had a ministry, uh, a health fair here where they ministered to so many people and gave haircuts and, and massages and blood pressure and glucose levels were checked. And all kind of things were going on around here. So thank all of you who have worked so hard to minister over the last couple of weeks during this uh, Easter season. Well, let's, let's dig into this. Matthew 19, verse 3. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, this is Jesus responding, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together Let no one separate. Why then, the Pharisees asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. (laughs) You can laugh, it's funny. Jesus probably chuckled too. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Father, we ask that you bless your word this morning. Uh, We pray that you would come and uh, you would be with us. We pray that you would open our hearts to your word. I pray, Lord, for uh, a spirit of healing today to come to our church, to those who are assembled here. 
We pray we would hear your voice. And Jesus, we pray that your kingdom, your rule and your reign would come to our hearts, to our lives, to our community here in Myrtle Beach. We welcome you here, presence of God. You're welcome in this place to come and do your wonderful and mighty work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Jesus is meeting with his nemesis here, the Pharisees, and he has, at this point in Scripture in Matthew, he has made his turn toward Jerusalem. We just celebrated Easter, and Jesus kind of has focused now, as he's realized he's headed to the cross, he's kind of focused on that and making his way there. He's in an area where John the Baptist was beheaded uh, a few years earlier. He's in an area where he has preached healing and he's seen hundreds and hundreds of people healed. And so there's quite a group of people following him at this time, uh, probably masses of people around him. But uh, the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders are there too, testing him, it says. And they came to test him to see if they couldn't get something out of his mouth that they could accuse him of or to maybe bring him up on charges or in some way discredit him before the people or before the religious leaders or the Roman leaders. And so this is all a setup. And the minute that they ask about divorce, I mean, that was a hot-button issue for this time. Uh, it's, they were debating this right and left, the rabbis were, because it had gotten to the point in this culture where a Jewish man wanted to get a divorce, all he had to do is if you went home this afternoon and your meal wasn't that great, you could pull out a little piece of paper, write on it, I divorce you. Sign your name, give it to them, and they had to get out of the house immediately. They couldn't take anything with them. They were out. They had no food. They had no money. They had nowhere to go. You had to get out. And it had gotten to that point in this culture. Till now the rabbis were debating it back and forth. Is that really what Moses meant? I mean, is, or is this, or, or should it be even tighter? Should we have even, you know, and so it was a hot button issue. And so I think they were going that direction, trying to catch Jesus somehow around the issue of divorce. And in this discussion, uh, Jesus says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. He puts it right back on them. He's like, you know, you, you're hard-hearted people. And because you're hard-hearted, God had some mercy. Moses had some mercy, and he let you, he let you divorce your wives. But it wasn't meant that way in the beginning. In the beginning of time, God had a perfect plan before hearts became hardened. Before sin entered the world, God had a great plan for marriages, for mankind. And, and he says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife in, uh, except for sexual immorality, and that word may surprise you what it is in the Greek. It's porneia. You ever heard anything similar in that word? Porneia. Uh, we hear the word porn, and we think of one thing, basically, but in this word, in this time, porneia meant anything basically sexual that could split a husband and a wife up. Anything that got into the marriage and disrupted that healthy sexual relationship. Porneia. And uh, and so Jesus tries to lay the groundwork for what God wanted originally. Now he takes us all the way back to Genesis. You've got to fill in in your handout if you want to track along with me. I put one of these in every week. And uh, you should have a pen as well. And There are four there today. Two of them start with the word God and two of them start with culture. And the first fill-in you have is this, simply this. God created sex. 
God created it. God created sex. Let's go back to the beginning and let's find out exactly what God had in mind. Over in Genesis 1.27, you've got to love the beginning of the story. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, notice them, them, them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Now, I only know one way to do that, you know, that I know of, increasing in number. And so God comes along and he says, hey, go Go increase, you know, do that. And in verse 31, it says, God saw, saw all that he had made, all that he had made, and it was very good, very good. Sex is very good. No men are amen in me. It's just like, now, I, I'm looking for a little help. Don't leave me out here by myself. All right, there we go. Don't leave me out here by myself this morning, boys. Uh-uh, you know. God said it was very good. And we move on into the second chapter of uh, Genesis, and kind of a, a reflective look. And God says that, you know, that he's looking at man and he goes, it's not good. He makes man, he puts him in this beautiful, what I think is tropical setting. And, uh, you know, he's letting him name all the animals and Adam's there by himself and there goes a cow and, you know, there goes a moose, and there goes an armadillo, and there goes, and, and, you know, it's just not getting it for Adam. I mean, he's just, he's watching these animals and going, I, you know, nice pets, but, I, you know, something's missing. I don't know what it is. Nice pets. And, and God looks down, you know, in verse 18 in chapter 2 of Genesis, and he says, the Lord God says, it's not good for the man to be alone. It's not good. And so God says, I will make a helper, someone to come alongside him. It's similar to the word of the Holy Spirit, someone that comes alongside, you know, comes alongside him, someone suitable. And uh, now the Lord God had formed out of the ground. He mentions all the beasts and the animals, and then he creates woman and out from the side of, and we see for the first time the splitting of the atom. <laughs> see, you didn't know the Bible was a science book. And right here in chapter 2 of Genesis, we have the splitting of the atom. Adam is split, and woman, and there we have man and woman, and Adam looks over at his wife, and he goes, wow. He looks at her, this is different. This is different. This man says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha, woman, my side, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves. Here's why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united, great word, to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. God created sex. It was his idea. It wasn't the devil's idea. The devil's never had an original thought in his entire life. All he can do is mess up. All he can do is copy and distort and kill, steal, and destroy what God meant for good. God created sex and said it was very good, and he gave it to that first couple at that first wedding date as God walked the wife down the aisle, the woman down the aisle there together, did the ceremony together, blessed them. 
Uh, you got, you know, you, I just, I love everything about this. In, in verse 24, that is why a man leaves his father and mother. Now, most of us, and we've said this in marriage counseling, couples have to leave. You know, they have to disengage with their, uh, their homes, with their moms and dads in order to be with one another. They have to. But in this, this really is more about, in this culture, emotionally leaving. Because in the Jewish culture, it would be normal for them to have gone back home, maybe to his house, to where mom and dad is and live together. They All the families live together. So Moses isn't necessarily talking about leaving the actual house as he is talking about disengaging emotionally enough that he can give himself to his wife so that they can relate together in a really healthy, good way. And, and he says, and is united to his wife. What a great word. One of, the, one of the words is, it's if you have a piece of tape, you know how you can put a piece of tape down and it sticks? Or you glue, take some glue and you put two pieces together? And then they, they adhere to one another. That's what that word means. It's they adhere to one another. And of course, you know, the damage of that is if you keep pulling the tape up and up and up and up and up again, what happens? It loses its stickiness, right? You keep tearing it and you keep tearing it and you keep tearing it. Then after a while, every time you are glued down again, you pull up a splinter from that spot. And then you go to the next spot and you're glued down and you tear up and you pull up a splinter from that spot until after a, long, a while you don't know what you've got with you. You don't know who you are when it comes to your sexual life and what you're giving to your mate. And so God says in the beginning, before, you know, before sin entered our, our culture and before we fell away and we fell victim to it and then became willing participants of this fallenness in our culture. God had a great plan. And of course, Easter reminds us that God is getting us back to his original plan. I mean, that's the beauty of Easter, isn't it? That the performance chart can be erased, as I said last week, and you can get a new chart, a new, a new ledger, clear and clean, and you can start your life all over again. And that is in every single area of our lives where the kingdom, the rule, and the reign comes. And, and so Jesus says it wasn't like this in the beginning to the religious leaders. In the beginning, God had a great plan for man and wife, for husband and wife, for man and woman, a great plan. And, uh, and the plan was to adhere and is stuck to his wife, and they become one flesh. The husband and wife stuck together, adhering together, to become one. God created sex. And, and yes, it was to be an emotional thing as, as well as a physical thing. And, um, you know, that back and forth and that separating can damage, can damage that whole relationship. Uh, if you wonder if God really did create it or not, I, you guys ever read this? Um, you ever read, like, I think I wrote the page down. It's page 613. Um, you know, if, 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 if you have my Bible, um, 613, if you read over in 613, you will find out what God thinks about sex and marriage. And uh, it's, it's a book called the Song of Songs. And I preached a series years ago through this, through this book. It's a beautiful, it's a play is what it is. It has a choir. It has a groom and it has a bride. And it has a choir. And the, the groom sings 
to his bride. The bride sings back to the groom. It's about honeymoon night. It's about the wedding night. And it's very explicit. Some of you would go, who put that in the Bible? Well, I can, you, know, you know who put it in there? Yeah, you're, yep, you're right. That's who put it in there. No, don't look at me. I, I didn't write it in there. It, you know, God put it in there. God intended that this was a gift from him to be enjoyed in the marriage relationship, to be a celebration. Your second feeling is this, that God created sex as a gift and a testimony. A gift and a testimony. It's a gift. It, uh, it's a gift for, I don't know if we get any closer to, to God-likeness than procreation. I don't know if there's a, another power given to us that's any more powerful than the fact that out of that relationship can come another life. That's a pretty powerful thing. Pretty powerful. And it's also given as a celebration for the couple so that they can... Now, I want to say this to my single friends too, you know, that, that you don't have to be married in order to exemplify God's perfection because I know of two people who weren't married did a pretty good job of it. One's Jesus. He was never married, right? And then there's the Apostle Paul. Paul even told... You know, he told his friends, hey, it'd probably be better if you didn't get married unless you burn up with passion so much. You need to get married. But if you can withstand it, give your life to the gospel and preach the gospel and give your life to it. So I don't want any of my single friends here to think you're left out. And also, I want you to know also that I realize is that every person has a sexual identity and has a sexual side to them. Every person does. And God knows that. And God is, you know, this is what we're talking about through this series. This week and next week we'll talk about this. And, uh, and so God created sex as a gift and a testimony. He didn't mean it to rule us. It was a gift. It wasn't to, we were not to be a slave to the gift. We were to use the gift as a celebration. And it was also given as a testimony. And uh, the Dutch have, I can't pronounce this word, but the, the way you spell it is N-A-I-E-N. And uh, I thought it sounded like nine in German, but that means no. <laughs> that can't be the right word for sex. <laughs> Maybe it is, I don't know. Uh, nine! <laughs> it's like <laughs> but the word N-A-A-I-E-N in Dutch uh, is a slang word for sex, but it comes from the word sewing. And it means to be sewn together so tightly and so perfectly that once the threads ravel, it still will not separate. Isn't that beautiful? That is a slang term in the Dutch language for sex. That two people have been sewn together in such a way that even when it's frayed and even when time moves on, that they're still just as bonded together as they ever have been, even closer. And this is God's plan that you originally is to give it this to us as a gift. In the Old Testament, in the King James Version, you'll see this phrase, to know, over and over again. Like, you know, uh, you know Abraham knew his wife, you know, knew. And we think, oh, that's nice. He sat down and had a conversation and got to know each other. That's, that's what I want. I want to sit down and get to know my mate. But the to know, yada, in the Hebrew language means basically to have sex. So when you read that, if you've got a King James Version, or if you have a version or a translation 
that uses to know, it means that they, were, they had sex. They knew one another. But that goes right back to Genesis, doesn't it? In the fact in Genesis 2 that they saw each other and they were unashamed. They knew one another. Is there anything more beautiful than being known by someone and knowing someone to the point that you have nothing to hide? And I don't just mean physically. I mean emotionally, every way. That when you sit down with that special person in your life, you can sit with them totally unashamed. And that was God's original intention for husband and wife. That we have a relationship such that no clothes can hide. We don't need to hide behind clothes. We don't need to hide behind mind games and arguments and personality weirdness and things like We don't have to hide with one another. But we can be known. And I can know this person that I've committed my life to. That was God's original plan, a beautiful plan. And that's how Adam and Eve could stand there with each other and not even know they were naked. They didn't know. There was nothing to be ashamed of. They didn't know. They had no idea because they were so open with one another. It was just them. That is God's purity and his plan for sex in marriage. Yada, to know, to know one another. And it goes beyond the physical. And uh, there was no shame. And it's also a testimony. God gave it as a gift and he gave it as a testimony. And I, I, maybe we were 10 years into our marriage when we, uh, I don't know, maybe we were reading Ed Wheat's book or Solomon on Sex. Was that the book we were reading? Anyway, we were reading a book somewhere about 10 years into our marriage or 15 years into our marriage and realized, and we had read it in the Bible, somehow we missed it in 1 Corinthians 6, where we realized that the sexual celebration in a marriage is also a testimony to God and to Jesus how much he loves his church and how committed and how he is stuck to his church and committed to them for life. And so we have, culture has so messed up our perspective of the sexual relationship that some of us hear that and we go, that's, oh, that's weird, God, you know, God. And, but that's not the way it was originally. That openness and that no shame and that enjoyment of one another was a picture of Christ in the church. In 1 Corinthians 6, in verse 13 through 20, Paul is speaking to a church in a town that knew a lot about sexual antics. I mean, it was a coastal town. Myrtle Beach knows a lot about sexual antics. We live here, right? I mean, this is, this is our place. I've watched this place for, you know, my whole life. I watched it go through the 60s. I watched it morph to where it is now. And I was a part of the 60s in Myrtle Beach and all that was going on. I know all of that. But this church in Corinth, this town of Corinth, was a coastal town. It had two ports. People would, you know, come through this city and there was there were parties and bars going on all the time as the people on the ships or the boats would come through. There were mostly Greeks in this town. They knew nothing uh, really of the faith of Christianity. And there were a lot of Romans in this town, so they knew nothing of it. They had their gods and their, the way that they lived life and the way they looked at sex. And then there was a small Jewish population. And then Paul goes, let's plant a church there. You know, let's get some Christian, let's get some Christian influence in this city of Corinth. Up on the top of the mountain in Corinth, in this city, on the very highest peak, when you came into these ports, you looked up, there was a temple up on the highest point, and it was the temple of Aphrodite. 
And up at that temple were a thousand female prostitutes. And some of the stories said they were sitting around the steps waiting on men just to show up. This is the culture into which Paul speaks when we get to 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Paul is speaking to a church that's being formed out of that culture, that ethos. Imagine that, going in and planting a church in that ethos. It's almost like coming to Myrtle Beach and planting a church, you know. You come in, you have to deal with this. And so the guys that are coming into this early church, it's normal life for them to go up to the temple because it's been wed with worship, with Aphrodite. And it's, so what? So what? I went up to the temple and hung out with some of the, you know, the girls for a while, and then I went home. What does it matter? That's life. That's normal life here in Corinth. They even had a saying, a Corinthian girl. If you ever got called a Corinthian girl, it was basically you were called a prostitute. And so this town had quite a reputation, and yet Paul loves this town. He loves the people in it. He wants to plant a church, and he wants to see the kingdom of God come to it. And he writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 13, The body, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality before the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself is one? There's that stickiness, that uniting. One with her in body. For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord, there it is, see the metaphor? United with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Most my place. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So the way that we handle our sexuality, the way that we deal with this in our marriages speaks of the testimony of God's faithfulness to us and how he's united to us. And there's something holy about that, something very holy about sexual relationships of a husband and a wife. I mean, imagine if you just knew that every time you united with your husband or your wife, that that was a holy moment that God had approved of and that he designed and it was his idea And that in that is a metaphor and a picture of how much Christ loves us and loves the church and how close he is and how we can be that close to him and not ashamed because of Christ and what he's done. Your next fill in, third one there is this, but culture has hijacked a beautiful gift. Culture has hijacked a beautiful gift. I read that the cartoon characters that are on television, man, cartoons have changed a lot. I mean, what happened to Wally Coyote? I mean, it's like, you know, the, the cartoon characters now that we see that our kids and grandkids watch, that the females in those cartoons, uh, their measurements are 21-inch waist and 44-inch bust on the cartoon characters. That's the images that our kids, five, six, seven, eight years old, are being fed early on in life. That's what they're seeing. That on television, uh, whenever they show a couple having sex, that it's 24 more times they are single and having sex than married couples that are having sex on television. 24 times more. 
It's, it's almost like a systemic evil, almost like a, a there's this, this plan, you know, to circumvent God's best for us, to rob us of what God has for us. Uh, I even think, and I think this came from Jack Hayford, I can't remember, maybe 30 years ago when we heard him one time, I even think our profuse use of the F-bomb is in some ways a way of just totally being derogatory about something that God has, uh, has all intentions of being holy. And instead we use terms and derogatory terms that bring down something that God intended for beauty and, uh, and to just dirty it up. Uh, it's a holy thing. Do you know what the opposite of holy is? Does anybody know? Yeah, you know, when I, when I first thought about this, I thought the opposite of holy is kind of like unholy, right, or something, but it's not. Like God is holy, right? If you want to really do discredit to God, then make him common. The opposite of something holy is commonness. Just make it uh, whatever common debase it bring it back down to some level where it is no longer special and it is no longer something beautiful make it common and our culture has done all that it can to try to debase a beautiful gift now you know the honest thing is that we have to face the fact that we're that culture you know the church is made up of that culture. That's us. We can't run away from it. We can't think we're in here and the nasty world's outside. No, the nasty world's inside. It's in here. It's in here. It's in here. Right here. But the good news is that God has his grace and his mercy and his power to come and to free us, to heal us, to be able to restore his grand and wonderful and beautiful initial plans for this area of life to us so that we can once again enjoy it and celebrate in it the way he always intended. That's the beauty of it. Paul says in Romans one twenty five. I mean, there's another culture, Romans. Uh, the Romans, and you'll hear more about this next week, the Romans had a whole different culture when it comes to sex. And Paul is speaking to them and he says, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. In other words, you create the image. And that's what our, our culture has done is they put images before us constantly until we worship the image. And if we don't get that image in one another, we won't value one another the way we should be valued because we're being trained that this is valuable. This is valuable. Worship the image. Worship the image. And if, if you don't look like this, then you're not worthy of worship. You're not worthy of attention. You're not worthy of love. You're not worthy of it if you don't look like this. And when that happens, we have been hijacked. We have been robbed of God's beautiful gift and testimony. And it's not going away. Not going to go away. We are going to have to deal with this. Uh, the pornography industry is like a 10 billion dollar industry bigger than the nfl the nba all of this bigger than it all and i found uh, this sociologist this phd from the university of salford in uh, england she wrote a book uh in which she wrote kind of a preface to which she talked about how she talked with her son about pornography and i want to read a little bit of this to you this lady as far as i know not a christian at all but she looked, she's been studying that industry for over 20 years. And uh, 
She said this, Porn is now so deeply embedded in our culture that it has become synonymous with sex to such a point that to criticize porn is to get slapped with the label of anti-sex because it has basically dictated to us what it is. I mean, it, it defines it now. And so it's hard to separate it. And she goes on to talk about her college-age son, and she had a talk with him, and she said, I have a college-age son, and I couldn't stand for pornographers to set up camp in his sexual identity. When he was entering his teenage years, we talked candidly about the use of porn and its potential effects. I told him that as he was getting older, he would most likely come across some porn, and he had a choice to look or not to look. I said that should he decide to use porn, then he was going to hand over his sexuality, a sexuality that he had yet to grow into that made sense for who he was and who he was going to be to someone else. Why, I ask him, would you give anyone something so valuable and precious, something that ultimately is yours, not theirs? And when I look out at the men in the lecture hall, when she speaks on this topic, they remind me of my son, and I feel outraged that they are caught in the crosshairs of this predatory industry, one that has a huge financial stake in habituating them to a product that dehumanizes all involved. This is from a sociologist, from a lady, not a church person, looking out on this industry. And she says to women, but even if a woman stays away from men who use porn, no easy task given its widespread usage, she can't insulate herself from it. Women's magazines, fashion ads, TV, music videos, and box office movies bombard women with images that would have a decade ago been defined as soft porn. This hypersexualization has put a pressure on women to look and act like they just tumbled out of the pages of Maxim or Cosmopolitan. Culture has hijacked us, taken us. And then the mapping of the brain begins, and then what's valuable and what's accepted, suddenly our, mains get, our brains get remapped to accept that, and then when we look at one another, we suddenly draw a conclusion, that's not, that doesn't look good enough, and that's not proper, and that's not good, and that's not good enough, and suddenly we're brainwashed and the purity and the beauty of what God always intended has been robbed from us. But the good news is this, and this is your last fill-in. Culture does not have the last say. Culture doesn't get to have the last say. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, here it is again, Paul writing to this church in Corinth, this young church in a culture and an atmosphere that's so sexualized. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's a pretty long list. Uh, It's just not one thing, is it? And that is what some of you say it were. But you were. Come on. And you were, what? Were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Some of you were, but you were. You were. You were. 
That's past tense, isn't it? Well, man, am I wrong? It's been a long time since I've been in an English class. But I think, you know, if something was and we say you were, it means you were. You can leave that behind. You can walk off from that. And Paul is telling this church in Corinth, that doesn't have to be the last story. That doesn't have to be the last part of your story as far as your sexual life. Jesus has come to save and to cleanse and to heal and to restore. And I know in this room today, there's a lot of people who are hurt and beat up and broken sexually. You don't live in this culture and not get beat up sexually. But I want you to know you have a God who loves you and cares for you and has a grand design to replenish that purity and that innocence that has been robbed from you. That is God's good gift to you. And he is very well able to do it. And he does a good job at renovation and salvation. Some of us go, what can we do? We live in such a society. I read this statistic too. This is from 2006 to 2010. It said the most common reasons that teenagers gave for not having sex was basically church. It was against their faith beliefs. Because they had been exposed to faith, they'd been exposed to teachings, they'd been exposed to the healthiness of the scripture. Sex is not dirty, it's God's beautiful gift and testimony given to mankind, but it's meant to be used responsibly and in a beautiful way so that it can be enjoyed the way He wants you to enjoy it. 38% of females said that, and 31% of males, teenage males, said it was their faith that kept them from getting any more broken than they are. We're a church in the middle of a wonderful place called Myrtle Beach. And I I love this place. This is where God has planted us. And this is the place we pray for and we want to see flourish. And we want to see, we pray for good jobs around here all the time because we know we need them and we pray for them that God would bring provision to this area and and you know what else? So we need to pray over our area that God would get, that people would get a taste of the purity of God's plan for sex. Because if you ever taste that place where there's no shame between two people whom God has united, a husband and a wife who settle down with one another and go, we're going to develop such a relationship we are not ashamed of anything. Imagine the power, spiritual power, emotional health, that can come from a relationship like that. That is offered to us in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.16 says, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. Were, were, were. The new is here. You are, are, are. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us, the church, the ministry of reconciliation. We're where you come. Are you broken sexually? Well, this is where you come. This is where you come. This is where you can be safe, where you can get healed, where you can be loved, where we can walk out of the scars of this society and this culture. This is the place we've been given the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. 
And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might become pure once again. He is not making a list of sins against you, but now he is saying, come, come and be forgiven, come and be restored. That is the call of Christ to us, and he's given that ministry to the church. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast from Seacoast Vineyard Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. We look forward to you joining us next time on iTunes or at our website, www.seacoastvineyard.com.